All right. Yep, you can hear me. Uh, thanks, Dan, for reading that portion. Um, I'm going to ask you all, if you haven't already, to turn to Second Peter chapter 1. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, my apologies uh, to all of those who have missed my fellowship on Wednesday and Friday. I tend to always uh, hold myself up in, in, in the basement of, of my home and as I prepare, so uh, my apologies on that. Um, you know, for the next three weeks or so, we're going to be looking at Second Peter as a church. And uh, uh, this is the second letter that Peter had sent out. And in the first letter, Peter wrote to the church and he warns them of the old enemy, the old lion, Satan. He was persecuting the church ferociously and causing much suffering. So that's the, the, the kind of theme that flows through First Peter. Now, in, in this episode, Second Peter, that we're looking at uh, today, Peter writes to the church warning them of the old enemy, Satan, the old liar, okay, who had false teachers and prophets in the church bringing in destructive heresies, who were twisting the truth. One letter talks about the attack from without or the outside, and the letter we're looking at today talks about the attack from within, the inside. And when you read this book, Peter has like one agenda, and that is to remind us, to cause us to remember the liberating truth, the liberating knowledge that has been shared with us all. And we can see this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 to 13. And this is what it says. Therefore, I, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by the way of reminder. And in the last chapter of this episode, he then lets them know this again. He says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember. So his intention in writing this letter is to remind and to bring to remembrance certain truths. And he's like, as long as I'm in this physical body, I am going to do my best to remind you over and over and over again. He's go he isn't going to live forever. He knows that. He remembers the Lord telling him, in, in John chapter 21, that he was going to die as a martyr. He doesn't know how much time he has left, but he knows it to be soon. And his aim is to ensure that he keeps reminding them of this truth. So what is it that he wants us to remember? The first thing he wants us to remember is that there is liberating knowledge. And that's the topic of today, liberating knowledge. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so I want to pause here for a bit at his signature, okay? He starts off by calling himself Simon Peter. Now what's in a name, you would say? Here are a few things we need to understand. Peter's original name was Simon and in John 1 verse 42, we see that 
the following. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Jesus had given him a new name, a name that meant a rock. And you see, when God changes a person's name and provides a new name, it's usually to establish a new identity. You know, if we remember Abraham and Sarah, their names were initially meaning high father and my princess, but with their new identities, it was now father of a multitude and mother of a nation. Mother of nations. And we know from history that the descendants of Abraham and Sarah formed many nations. The same is with Jacob. God had changed his name to Israel. See, Jesus changed Peter's name. Simon, Peter. And there are times that we will notice that Jesus would refer to Peter as Simon. And, and I believe it was to remind him that he was acting or acted like his old self instead of the rock that God had called him to be. And in 1 Peter, he identifies himself as Peter. Here, he refers him to, to himself as Simon Peter. The name Simon is associated with this great disciple in his failures and weaknesses. It is to remind the audience of the humility that he joins in his signature here. He knows of his own human fallibility as he addresses the failings and faults of others. Peter, who was about to warn others of the dangers of denying the faith, had himself once denied the Lord. You see, he was, however, Peter. The Peter who was in the front ranks of the apostles. He always heads the list whenever the apostles were named. You look through the Gospels, you looked at Acts, and they named the apostles Peter. Peter was the first one that confessed Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. A truth which Jesus said was divinely revealed to Peter. He was the apostle that opened the doors of the church to the Jews on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. And he was also present when the first Samaritans received the Holy Spirit in Acts 8. And to the Gentiles in the Roman city of Caesarea in the Gentile Cornelius' home in Acts 10. Peter was well known by both Jewish and Gentile Christians. And that's his signature he adds here. And, and I want to move now to his status. A servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. See, the word used here is doulos, which means a slave. This was his lowly status. And Peter draws this picture of the Old Testament bond servant who so loved his master that when the time came for his freedom, he intentionally, willingly chose to remain a lifelong bond slave. Such was his love for his Lord. So Peter dones the title this status as a servant. However, he also says an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was a sent one, an ambassador, someone who was able to speak from his own personal 
experience about Jesus and his work and surely his resurrection. This was his lofty status. You know, see, Peter is not eager to flaunt his authority. Apostle comes not first, but second in line. He positions himself before the church, the audience, as one who doesn't want to use his honored, honored position to lord it over them, to lord it over the rest of the church. No, he had learned this from Jesus. In Luke 22, verses 25 to 26, and he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. Peter provides the same humble emphasis in verse 1. He goes on to say, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, the intention here is to place the readers of this letter on the same spiritual plane with himself as an apostle. You see, the most important thing, hear me out, the most important thing in anyone's life is their faith. And in regards to that, Peter is on the same plane with the rest of the church, Jesus had mentioned this to the disciples in Luke 10, verse 19 to 20. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in these, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You see, it's easy to lose focus on what is really important when you can walk over serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and not be hurt. But Jesus reminds them, the thing of true worth is that your names are written in heaven. No matter what is given to us in terms of authority by Christ, we should never for forget that our greatest joy in this life should simply be that we are saved by faith just like all the other saints. There are three parts in, in the second half of verse 1 that describes the spiritual equality of all believers before God. First, it is the phrase of faith of equal standing. You see, the faith of the weakest, humblest believer is of equal value in God's sight as is the faith of one like Abraham or one like Peter. The one operating principle in the Christian life is faith. Faith in general, is the common denominator of life on earth. You know, we apply it whenever we enter a building. We, we trust that the builder and the architect have done a good job. We, we, uh, we, we put faith when we, when we place our money in a bank. We trust the integrity and soundness of, of the bank. And when we fly a plane, we trust the designers, we trust the builders, we trust the maintenance crew that they've done the necessary checks. We trust that there's hopefully a pilot flying the plane. And in this day and age, we hopefully trust that the necessary security checks have been done on all the other passengers in the plane. <laughs> you see, we rarely think about these things until our trust is betrayed. Saving faith is different. And the difference is the object and provider of our faith. Because secondly, as we look, 
Peter uses the word obtained. Now, the Greek word for obtained used here has been used three other times in the New Testament. And this is what it means. Each of these cases, all three of them, the obtaining used here is referring, it's not that you've obtained it by your own effort, but by lot. It's a word that Peter is using to show us how foolish it would be for us to boast in our faith. It has come to us by God's divine will, not by some effort we have put in. And the third way of stating the equality of believers when it comes to faith is to show us that the distinction and value of our faith is from the righteousness of Christ and not our own. We completely depend on Christ's faithfulness to do right and not ourselves. So we do not boast in our faith for we obtained it as a gift and its foundation is not our righteousness but Christ's who is our God and Savior. This is liberating knowledge. Our faith has an equal standing with all others for it is given to us by God and is based on the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Peter, you know, in this whole of verse 1 speaks to us with a tender ring of love and humility. He does have authority, but he brings himself low to meet us as a brother and to serve us and not to lord it over us. And and I think this is important for us to to get. You see, just as, as Peter positions himself as a slave, as a servant, we got to remember that too. Not just an elder or a deacon, but a slave. Not just a teacher or ministry leader, but a slave. Not just a manager or supervisor, but a slave. We all have like precious faith. It is, of course, based on the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There is no inequality in the body of Christ. There is neither bond nor free, male or female, Jew nor Greek, all are one. He that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. We have received an equally valuable saving faith. How humbling. You know, this precious faith that I, that I have is the same precious faith you have. This faith that has been granted to me by divine will, not my own. It is based on not on my own righteousness, but by the righteousness of my Lord and my Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh, how glad I am that it is not based on my righteousness, that it is not based on me. How glad I am. This is liberating knowledge. Peter goes on as he, as, he, as he moves to verse 2 here and says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. This is what Peter wants for us, for each and every one of the church. And, and we are so used to reading grace and peace as introductory statements that we just read past it. And, and he states, listen, he, he puts an emphasis even at the end of this episode. He says, but grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, he, he says that 
this grace and peace that I want you to have, it comes from God. They're not ours by right or nature. And he wants us and longs for us to abound in grace that God might multiply it to us exponentially. He wants us to grow in it. You see, grace is the provision of God for our every need while we live here. All of God's infinite resources are at our disposable. Are, 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 are at our disposal to be able to face each and every situation that is thrown at us in this life. If it is by false teaching from within the church or persecution from outside, God's grace is more than sufficient. So, when we look at this verse, that it says that God's grace and peace is multiplied through you, but it's through and in the knowledge of God. You have to know God. If you want to enjoy God's peace and grace, your knowledge of Him must grow. Now, the word knowledge here used is not gnosis, the simple word for knowledge. It is epignosis. It means a genuine, full, rich, deep, lavish knowledge. It is a thorough knowledge. It is from a thorough, personal, growing knowledge of God that grace and the peace of God multiplies. So where the knowledge of the glory and excellence of God is deficient, grace does not flow. We have got to study the word of God, scripture, to for from it comes the knowledge of God. And through that, grace and peace is multiplied in your heart. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying read. I'm saying study. Don't just skim through the Bible to check a to-do item on your list for the day. Read, study, wrestle with the Word of God. It is great, absolutely great, that as a church that we have a reading plan. And we have to go further. We have to go further to pursue a deeper personal knowledge of God. Grace upon grace, peace upon peace is available to us who have a thorough, growing, genuine, full, rich, deep, lavish, personal knowledge of God. It says... His divine power, in verse 3, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. So first, we've got to get this straight. The aim is life and godliness. That is the goal, that we are able to attain life and become godly people. Now, second point is the source of this is from God. Divine power comes from God. And lastly, knowledge is the means by which the power produces life and godliness in us. Life and godliness is the goal. And, and just to explain this, the term godliness, it's moral and spiritual transformation now in this life. And life is the hope of eternity. 
for life and eternity. You must have both of them. See, you cannot have eternal life and not be transforming morally or spiritually now. I'm talking about godliness, the principles of right behavior and goodness of character, having high principles of proper conduct. If we are to reject the way of godliness, so is the hope of eternal life. So please, let us not try to turn faith into an insurance policy to escape hell and live a life that is unchanged and unrepentant. Are you understanding what I'm trying to say here? (laughs) If you do not pursue to know God more, if you do not repent of your sins, if you reject the way of godliness, please do not be surprised by the outcome of God's verdict when you stand before him. Let us not fool ourselves into thinking that salvation equates to an unchanged life, brothers and sisters. See, we, we love to hold on to certain aspects of who Jesus is. We love to hold on to him as a savior, as our beloved. However, just in these two introductory verses, we see Peter state what? Jesus is savior and Lord. You see, he is more than just your savior. He is your Lord. And, and, and I want us to understand, yes, I am saved by the grace of God through faith, both of which is a gift of God, grace and faith. I get that. And I have been purchased by my Savior Jesus with his precious blood. Purchased. Lord, Master, Owner. They go together. The new life, the love that God has poured out to me, and the fact that I am his because he purchased me, causes me to love him back. I love him by getting to know him and keeping his commandments. And my love and knowledge of who Jesus is causes me to say with joy that I am a slave and a servant of Jesus Christ. See, there's a prevalent thinking that seems to be happening that we are called to be passive. This is contrary to scripture. We are called to live a godly life. We are called to godliness. Now, see, I'm, I'm going to say don't worry about how we're going to live a godly life because the verse says it. It says God's divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. See, I, if I was Joel Osteen here, I would say, look, God's divine power has granted us all things. Go get the biggest house. Go get the car. No, no, no. God's divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. See, this is liberating knowledge right here. This helps us from being deceived into thinking, oh, why am I not so successful as the world defines success? There are things of much greater value, much wonderful value, and that is godliness and life. And that the humbling aspect is this, when it comes to grace, when it comes to peace, when it comes to godliness, when it comes to life, all of it must come from God. Not only our justification, but our sanctification. We are utterly and entirely dependent on Him. Everything must be provided 
by him. And this is liberating. It doesn't mean that we are passive, though. Hope you understand that. It just shows us that it's possible. We can overcome the battles we are facing. There is a victory on a daily basis for us. We can actually live a godly life. It is the knowledge of this that divine power is exercised in our life. How you know, liberating it is to know that God has promised us his divine power, not only when it comes to life, but when it comes to godliness. But we must access it through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. That's liberating point three. God, divine power, has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Any deception of being called only to life and not godliness is removed now. If you've been deceived to think that it's all about life and not godliness, I hope you're free now. You're liberated from that thought because it's not biblical to say that all that matters is the life and not the godliness. Power is provided to those who rely on Jesus' righteousness and is active and experienced in our life as it goes on to say in verse 3 through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. See, Peter is emphasizing something for us. He says, you know, just as grace and peace is multiplied in the knowledge of God, so is divine power granted to us through the knowledge of God. The grace of God is free power that works in us for our good, and it becomes prevalent on a day-to-day basis in our life, through our knowledge of God. How powerful is that truth? How liberating is it to know that God has called us to his own glory and excellence? And I'm reminded of the story of, of, of poor lost Mephibosheth. You know, for those of you who remember, he was King Saul's grandson and the son of David's friend Jonathan. And he was lame on both of his feet. And he dwelt in distant Lodabar. The place means the place of no pasture, a dry and thirsty land. And as the son of Jonathan, Israel's crown prince, Mephibosheth, had been born to great expectations, but they had all been swept away by the defeat of his grandfather, King Saul, and the the death of Jonathan, his father, and the collapse of Saul's house. He had become a fugitive, remembered Uli as a surviving member of the house of Saul and Saul being a man who for many years had persecuted David. Once David was securely settled on the throne, he sent the messengers of his grace to find Mephibosheth and to bring him to himself. He wanted to show the kindness of God unto him. So Mephibosheth responds, and, and, and to, the, to the royal invitation, he came in all of his poverty, brokenness, and need. And David adopted him then and there into his own royal family and seated him at his own table as one of the king's son. But Mephibosheth did not have the resources to maintain himself in a manner comparable with his newfound dignity and rank. But David restored to him all of the land that had once belonged to his grandfather Saul. In other words, 
David gave him all that he needed so that he could live his new life as one of the king's sons. You see, in like manner, when we respond to the gospel invitation, the Lord puts us into the royal family of heaven, and we become sons and daughters of the living God and members of the nobility of the universe. Great are the demands now made upon us to live like sons and daughters of the living God. We do not have it. We do not have it in us to to live like Jesus lived as children of the king. So he gives us all that we need. And we must now live his life, not our life. It must be lived in his power, not our power. And that's beautiful truth. You see, in verse 4, he says, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So this, in some way, is a repetition of verse 3. You see, the knowledge and godliness is interpreted for us in verse 4. The knowledge that leads to life and godliness is the knowledge of God's precious and very great promises. Not just promises, not just great promises, not just very great promises, but precious and very great promises. You see, the knowledge that leads to life and godliness is the knowledge of God's precious and very great promises. The knowledge of God's glory and excellence gives power for godliness only if it communicates to us the happy promise that we are called and included. See, what's the point of having knowledge if it doesn't apply to us? Okay? Um, It isn't powerful. I'll give you an example. I remember the times uh, in my college days when I used to eagerly wait to go hang out with my friends after school, only to realize that I had to go to work that night. It was a horrible feeling. You know, the knowledge of knowing that my friends were going to hang out with me was horrible. However, the days that I could go and hang out were refreshing. I knew it was going to happen. There was a spring in my step. Do you know the feeling? Do you get what I'm talking about? You see, the knowledge of the glory of God must be promising if it is to carry any power in our life. We must know it and believe that we are included, that the promises are ours, that the call is to us. And this is what it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 19. For this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints... I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. You see, verses 3 and 4, two things need to happen. You know, we need to be liberated from the power of sin that destroys our life and we need to be united 
to God, to be, uh, to God in his likeness. Those are the two things. And this can only come by knowing and trusting his liberating, precious, and very great promises. You see, I, I hope that today I was able to remind you of the liberating knowledge we have in God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, my prayer is that we would win our daily battles against the passion, the lust, and desire of our flesh by having a more powerful desire. And that is in the true fulfillment that it's only available in God's promises to us. We can only know what his promises are if we read and study his word on a daily basis. Search for the many promises that God has laid out for us. I'm not going to give you all the promises because there are a multitude of them. A multitude of the promises. And we've just covered some of them, which is God's justification. How he gives us his power to live a godly life. But there are tons more of his beautiful, precious promises that is available for us. But you can only tap into that by studying his word. I hope there is liberating knowledge in knowing that all of us who have put their faith in the righteousness of Christ have obtained a faith of equal standing. There is no one more superior than the other here. Listen, guys, there is no one more superior than the other here. And I hope the liberating knowledge that Peter shared with us has removed any deception to think that life can happen without godliness. I hope if there was anyone here that they, that they were liberated from that deception. Life and godliness are two sides of the same coin. I'm not here to give you a whole bunch of application points. That's not my job because each one of you have your own struggles. It is the job of the Holy Spirit to convict you. You know, that it, it's his job to prick your heart. My heart was stabbed, not pricked. You see, pray for me as I pray for all of you that the Lord will cause in us a desire and heart for his word from which grace, peace, power will flow into our lives through the liberating knowledge of him and his precious and very great promises. See, if you, if you lack grace, you're lacking peace, you're lacking the power to overcome the stuff in your life that you seem to be falling down to, it's here. It comes to the knowledge of God and his very precious and great promises. Let's just pray. Father, we, we thank you, O Lord, as we turn to your precious word, that as we see the heart of Peter, who speaks to us with his love and humility, who shares to us that we have access to this divine power. We have access to grace and peace and this life and godliness. And it is through your precious word. How foolish of us to think otherwise. How is it, oh Lord God, that we could be so foolish to think otherwise? Lord, stir our hearts. Stir our hearts to go to your word, to, to dig deep, to be submerged in your word, to see these beautiful 
precious promises that are trustworthy. They are going to happen. We do not serve a God who lies. We serve a God who keeps his word. Father, help us to fight the renewed fight, knowing that every struggle we face in this life can be won because you have provided your strength in our weakness. Father, we thank you, Lord God, for this beautiful salvation that you have given us, this life eternal. We thank you, Lord, that we can have this liberating feeling knowing that we are a people who have been called out. Grace, faith, both gifts from you. Why, O Lord God, would you choose us? We thank you, O Lord God, that you have in your sovereignty, that you have revealed yourself to us, that you have quickened our hearts. We pray, Father, that your spirit would work in our hearts, that we would understand the calling in our life, is to live a godly life serving a master, a Lord, who deserves our all. Thank you, O Lord, once again, for all that we have uttered, we have said, we have done so in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ.